list for you. And uh, I'm going to read off the items on that list, and I want you to see if you can figure out what is it that's holding uh, those items somewhat loosely together. So uh, when you, from your youngest days, uh, you were one of those kids who just hated even being picked up. Okay? From your youngest years, uh, you insisted. You're one of those little tykes who just insisted on dressing yourself. Um, and I can do it all by myself. That was sort of the, your mantra there when people tried to teach you how to tie your shoes. Um, you went on to grade school. Uh, you found yourself making regular trips to the principal's office. Maybe even you had a, a special seat there set aside just, just for you and your regular visits. Uh, time goes by, maybe on into to middle school. You have made hating education and schooling a fine art. Uh, you have really risen in, and to the occasion in that and, and turned it into an art form. Um, time goes by, you hit high school. And, uh, you know, it doesn't, you've got that kind of dynamic in play. The teachers almost kind of see you coming, and they don't really look forward to seeing you coming. And by the time you get to your senior year of high school, uh, you have made cutting class, it's an art form. Um, and it's, it's something that perhaps you would even do well to, to write an ebook on. Um, what, all, what does all that mean? What does all that have to do with, with one another? Common thread, my friend. You have a problem with authority. You have a problem with authority. Uh, you have this instinctual, visceral response to anyone telling you what to do. And that's actually uh, something that we all suffer from. Maybe you didn't identify with any of those things I just listed off a moment ago. But I can promise you this. Every single one of us in this room has a problem with authority. And it is not fundamentally a matter of temperament. It is not fundamentally a matter of personality. It is not fundamentally a matter of how you were raised, how strictly or loosely or whatever the case may be. It is a heart issue. It is a heart issue. Our problem with authority that ultimately is rooted in our relationship with God Himself, and our resistance to His rightful authority over us. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10. We are pushing on through this slow but steady series in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, this is the first of the Gospels, the first of the books of the New Testament that we have. Uh, Matthew. Matthew chapter 10 is where we are. If you find Mark and Luke and John, those are well worth your reading, but not now. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be reading verse, starting in verse 5, reading on through verse 15. So Matthew 10, starting in verse 5, on through verse 15. Hear now God's Word. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts. No bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. 
And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. They're strong words. And we need to hear them and pay heed. Let's uh, pray together. Lord, we do need to hear, and it's hard to hear some of this. Some of this is, seems to make sense. Some of it just lands real easily for us. But even that, uh, I think is, it's likely that we're not even hearing well on those points. Uh, we need, even as we sang just a moment ago, we need you every hour. We need you when we come to your word and open it up. Uh, we need you to instruct our minds and our hearts, lest we be hearers and not doers, uh, lest we be just mere students in terms of intellect and not disciples when it comes to life and practice. Um, and that is only going to happen by the working, the moving of your Spirit. Uh, we pray this, we ask for this now. Illumine our minds. Illumine our minds and our hearts, we ask. Amen. Well, let's dive in here. Uh, this is the first assignment that uh, Jesus' disciples are being given. They're being sent out, and you may recall if you were here last week that it is flowing right out of some things that we learned there in terms of His sending and His Sending, it's been, you know, it was alluded to last week in the text we were looking at there in the latter part of chapter 9, first part of chapter 10, brings us to where we are now. But what we saw there last week was this sending is reflecting something of Jesus' deep distress for the lost. Uh, it reflects also his surprising willingness to, to delegate to people like us in the sending. And then in addition to all of that, the wonderful beautiful intentions that he has in terms of the diversity uh, for his church. We see all of that reflected in this sending, but that then brings us now to, well, this first mission. And so you read there in verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing, instructing them, and then you read what's coming the rest of chapter 10. And we're just looking at the first part of that uh, here this morning. There's a couple of things I want to point out, though, before we really get too far into this at all, that, that are, are vital that we understand, especially in this first section of chapter 10 in the instruction that Jesus is giving. Okay? And the first thing is, is this. This is a, especially these first few verses, what we're looking at today, is a specific charge for a specific mission. Okay? Uh, there's a specific historical context that has a lot to do with why Jesus is saying what he's saying to whom he's saying it. Now, what that means is that there's going to be a lot that will transfer over very well into things that we need to take heart and take heed to today, but there will be some things that will not. There will be some things that's going to be more broader principles that we need to infer from because of the specific context in which Jesus is speaking. Okay, That's thing one. Thing two that we need to consider and pay heed to is who is being sent and who is doing the sending and not get those roles reversed. 
Who's being sent? Who's doing the sending? Put it another way, uh, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We are but His disciples and followers. Ours is then, but to trust and heed His commands. He is Lord. We are His followers and His disciples. Ours is then, but to trust and heed His commands. We're the ones being sent. He is the one doing the sending. We've got to keep all of that straight. Now, Jesus, in saying these things, I mean, just implicitly is making a claim here. We see this all through the Gospels. He doesn't even have to say, I'm the Son of God. By nature, the fact he says the things that he does in the way that he does tells us who he knows himself to be and what we need to reckon with. He is making authority claims just in saying what he's saying in these commands that he's giving here. Go and do this. Go and do that. Don't go there. Go there. There's some things we need to, to take into account. And, and I think what we can see here all the more shows is his lordship and our need to take heed of his word and follow that uh, in these three things. It's there in your outline, these three main points that you're going to see. We're going to unpack this. First, he tells us where we're to go, what we're to do, how we're to do it. Where we're to go, what we're to do, how we're to do it. And all of that shows us all the more who's doing the sending, who's being sent, who is Lord, who are the followers. So let's look at this. First, where we're to go. You see this in verses 5 through 6. This, Jesus uh, says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this might strike you as somewhat startling. This is a restriction that Jesus is giving here, a hemming in, being very explicit as far as what the frontier was that they were to be pushing into. They're not there. They're not to go to the Gentiles, not to go south either uh, to the Samaritans. They are to stay there in the province of Galilee, which is where they've been already for, for this point in Jesus' ministry, but he's saying that's where you're, you're to stay. Now that may seem somewhat surprising, and he says you're to, instead of going to any of the Gentiles, you're to stay and minister and preach only to the Jewish people, to your fellow Jews, to your countrymen. The very people actually that were described back in chapter 9, verse 36, we looked at this last week, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, what's the rationale behind this startling restriction? Well, there's two things in play. First, a practical reality. The fact of the matter is these guys weren't ready to go any further than Jesus is telling them to go. Uh, there's a, the, the practical reality, not just of a lack of skill set, although that probably is there, uh, but more than that, not just lack of skills, but lack of heart. As you read through the Gospels, it's very clear that, that all 12 of these men are still struggling profoundly with a presumptuous, arrogant spirit with pride and prejudice towards non-Jewish people. They aren't ready to go with the Gospel message to non-Jewish people with a prejudice proud, presumptuous attitude. That makes that would that'd be a disaster to send them with that. That's the first thing, this practical consideration, practical reality in play. But there's something else. There's, there's something even deeper 
there as well. And that has to do with uh, the ancient promises that had been made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as to how God's plan of salvation was to begin and to unfold over the course of the centuries, progressively so. Beginning first with the Jewish people, and through the Jewish people, to all peoples. And, and there seems to be a, a reflection of even that here in Jesus' instruction. You see, that, that's basically the outline of the book of Acts, starting in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 28. You see Paul speaking to that in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. If you want to turn there uh, with me, this is after the four Gospels and after the book of Acts. You uh, find Romans, and in Romans chapter 1, Romans 1, verse 16, Paul speaks here, just almost kind of in an offhand way, in a way that, hey, this is just fundamental, you should know this, because he doesn't explain it. But chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's a reflection of this deeper intentionality that the Lord has in terms of the, the, the plan and the progress as that's going to unfold over the course of the ages. Okay, here's the thing. This broader reach, this broader mission for the twelve would come. We know that. You just keep reading. And there's evidence of it even if you just look at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew as well. That broader mission will come. But for now, they're being hemmed in and Jesus is laying down a restriction. Okay. Now, I said a moment ago, there's some stuff in here that because of the specific historical context was basically true just for them, but there's some stuff that can transfer over to us. So what about us, right? What are some things that we can learn here from here this, this restriction, Jesus telling them where they were to go? Because we know this much. That restriction doesn't apply anymore. In fact, it's just the opposite. I mean, it's go and go yesterday. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and this is uh, actually a, a quote, I read a quote earlier in the, as we were beginning the service from Cost of Discipleship. In the very next paragraph, Bonhoeffer, and, and this is in a section in Cost of Discipleship where he's reflecting on this very passage. This is what Bonhoeffer says. In his very first word, Jesus lays down a limitation of their work, a circumstance they must have found strange and difficult. The choice of field for their labors does not depend on their own impulses or inclinations, but on where they are sent. This makes it quite clear that it is not their own work they are doing, but God's. Now this phrase sticks out to me. The choice of field for their labors does not depend on their own impulses or inclinations. Well, on whose? The Lord of the harvest. It's His to determine and declare where we are to go and to whom we are to go to. So where are we to go? Everywhere. To whom are we to go? To everyone. And for you and for I and for this week, where does that begin? I'm not going to answer that for you. I'm going to put it to you to take it up with him and wrestle with that. Who are you sending me to? In my circles of influence, in the people that I live and rub shoulders with, who are you sending me to now? Point being, He is the Lord, 
Jesus is the Lord. We are but His disciples. We are but His followers. Ours is then to trust and to heed His commands, including where, where we're to go. That's the first thing. The second thing following up immediately from that is what we're to do. And Jesus speaks explicitly, pointedly on this as well. If you keep just reading on from where we left off, now picking up in verse 7, and proclaim as you go. So he says, you know, don't go there, go there, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. All right. At the very least, Jesus has in mind here a balanced ministry. Uh, that is to say, a ministry of both word and deed. Ministry of word. Uh, proclaiming the gospel, the gospel of the, king, the kingdom, the, being a herald of this beautiful, wondrous, amazing message. The king has come. The tyrant has been put down. Long live the king. That is the good news. That is the good news, that, uh, the message of the kingdom that we are to be proclaiming, a summation of that. A, a, a ministry of word and then Coupled with that, also a ministry of deed. In this case, you could say signs that accompany and confirm and verify the message that the king has actually come. That's what's going on there in verses 7 and 8. Now, the rationale for that. Why this balanced ministry? Why, why this, the, the two things? Not just one, not just the other, but the two together. of ministry, The ministry of both word and deed at least these two things. First, it's, a, a, it's to go as far, as, it extends as far uh, as the need. A ministry of word and deed is extending as far as the need actually is. See, the, the fall was, a, was a, an event that took place in time and space. And therein has its impact in time and space. Which means that there is this need, mind, body, and spirit... We are crippled just completely, thoroughly so as human beings. Mind, body, and spirit. That's got to be addressed. And that's partly what we see here with uh, this um, balanced ministry here. Also, though, not just is it meeting the extent of the need, but it is also a continuation of his work. That's alluded to in verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So the disciples are carrying on the same message that Jesus has been proclaiming all along, the gospel of the kingdom. They are also doing so in the same power, with the same authority. He is Lord. He is, it is His to determine and to declare, not just where we're to go, but what we're to do. Now again, what do we do with this? Again, this is some situationally specific, it's a historical context, okay, that's fine. But still, still, he's sending us forth in a ministry of word and deed. That hasn't changed. It's still the same message. The gospel of the kingdom. The same good news. And it's also to be, a, to, it goes forth with the same power. It's only going to land in human hearts the same way it ever has by the power of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of men and women and children. Which then I have something then to say to two groups of people here this morning. First, the despairing. Some of you here this morning 
have shared this news with someone that is near and dear to your heart, and they have not heard it. They have not embraced it. And that has crippled you up. You are despairing over that. My friend, you are carrying a burden that is not yours to carry. Yours is to speak, not to convert. That is His work. You are despairing and carrying a burden that is not yours to carry. So that's the first group I want to speak to. But there's a second group, and that's who I'll call the jubilant. You have spoken. You have shared this same good news with someone near and dear to your heart. And in this case, they have responded. They have embraced that good news. You should rejoice. You should be jubilant. But at the same time, my friend, please be careful. Please be wary. Especially as you compare your experience to the despairing and the person who's over here hurting because the person they have spoken to has not heard and you're now wondering, wonder what I did right and they did wrong. Just as they are carrying a burden they should not carry, you are taking credit that is not yours. This is the Lord's work. This is the Lord's work. We are but His disciples, but His followers, called to heed and trust His commands. Which then takes us to the third thing. Not just do we see here something of where we're to go. That's vital. Not only do we see something here of what we're to do. That's vital. But we also see something of how we are to do it. Now, as is the case with the first two, uh, the, the instruction that we see here in terms of how we're to do it is certainly calling for a posture of submission. Absolutely. And there's a ton here. And we don't have time to cover it all very thoroughly. I'm just going to fly through and kind of summarize in a broad brush paint strokes the, you know, what's holding this together here uh, in verses 8 through 15. The, the thing that holds it together is this, an integrity of witness. An integrity of witness, a consistency in both the message and the method. The gospel message should be going forth with a gospel method, if I can put it that way. There ought to be an integrity between the two. What do you see, we see here? First, the need to give freely of ourselves. We see this in verse 8. Jesus says in the second half of verse 8, you receive without paying, give without pay. Give of yourselves, give freely. Also, secondly, trust fully. Give freely, trust fully. Picking up verse 8. Nine, acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Now, please understand, Jesus is not prohibiting uh, private property. He is not ruling out specifically the ownership, the possession of these particular items. That's not what he's getting at at all. What he is simply saying here is that this, what I have in mind for you in this context, at this moment, is a short-term mission, an assignment. It does not require exhaustive preparations. Take what's in your hands and go. 
just go. That's what's going on here. So, give freely, trust fully as you go. Thirdly, if I can put it this way, go quickly and keep going. Verse 11, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that, town, that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. I know there's a lot here we could talk about. I just need, want to point out just a few key things. First, he says, go to those who are worthy, meaning not in a uh, moral sense or a sense of honor or standing or anything like that, but in, in the sense of those who are receiving and accepting you and your message, that's who he's referring to as the worthy ones, go to them, work with them, come alongside them, and those who are not receiving and accepting you and your message, you need to understand something. It's not ultimately you that they are refusing to accept and receive. It's me. It's me that they have rejected. Once that is clear, move on. Because the stakes are high and others need to hear. Now again, that sounds cold and crass and hard. It's historical context. This is the first missionary assignment that they're being given. That has a lot to do with what's in play here. Cultural practices, shaking off the dust off your feet when you leave. That was, you know, sort of the, the, the way what Jews would do. And keeping in mind they're going and talking to just Jewish people. But the idea was, if you went into this, is, I'm, Jesus is not supporting this idea, but he's just making reference to the cultural practice that when you went into a Gentile territory and you came back into Israel, the idea was you'd shake the dust off your feet because you didn't want contaminants coming into the Holy Land. That's what that, that practice was about. And he's keep in mind, he's saying this going to your fellow Jews now to demonstrate something of the, of the stakes that are involved in here that, that you need to understand, that they need to understand. So this is huge. Well, the rationale behind this. this uh, again, again, let me just make clear. This has to do with the integrity of the witness. If I can trace back to those three things that I mentioned a moment ago. The generosity of self. They had been freed from lives given towards, directed towards, enslaved by uh, a living for self and comfort and ease and the accumulation of things. They had been freed from all of that, freed to give of the whole of themselves to others, and that's exactly what they needed to show as they went for it. So, the generosity to self, trusting in God's provision. They are proclaiming this one who is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, who the Father in heaven who has given unto us of His Son such that, my goodness, can we not look to Him, pray to Him, rely upon Him for our daily provision? Well, then they needed to do that. They couldn't just say that. They needed to do that. And then finally, not just the generosity of self, a trusting in God's provision, but a willingness to tell the truth. They had been freed from the enslaving need, and many of us know what this is, to live for the approval of other people. They had been freed from that. 
free to tell people not what we think they want to hear, but what they need to hear, even if it's hard to hear. And that they needed to speak. So with this integrity of message, living out this the message of the gospel coupled with the means and, and methods of the gospel, the need for that consistency, Jesus is calling for this generosity, this trust, and this willingness to tell the truth. Now, what do we pull from this? What do we glean from this? Well, all those things are, that I just said, but, but as Francis Schaeffer said, and there's a, I think there's a quote in your quotes and notes, yeah, from uh, No Little People, No Little Places, but um, towards the very end, he makes references. This basically sums up the whole thing. Point three, we are to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. We are to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. And there cannot be a disjunction, a, a disintegrity, or a disintegrity uh, between those, those things. He is the Lord. We are his disciples. We are his followers. Ours is then to trust him, to heed him, to, to go forth in a way that fits the hope that we have and is consistent with the goodness of the gospel. Now, as I alluded to a moment ago, all of this is, is sort of encapsulated by a submission on our part, an ordering under of ourselves, under his call and his leading, which frankly comes hard for us. Submission is a, well, it's not quite a four-letter word, but for many of us it feels like it. It's, it's counter to so much of our impulses and, and our desires. But when we consider who we're being called to submit ourselves to, to Jesus, that can instill trust. That can inflame a humble submission, a glad submission, perhaps even an expectant submission on our part when we consider and lay hold of who it is we are being called to order our lives under, submit ourselves to. I'm reminded of this, of this uh, passage from C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair. This is uh, one of the, the books in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, the Silver Chair, the, you may, if you've read it, there's four signs that uh, were given to uh, Jill and Eustace by the, the mighty Aslan, these four signs that they were to, to uh, adhere to. They were meant to be guides as they were being sent forth on this mission to try and find Prince Rillian and deliver him back to his old father, King Caspian. And Aslan gives them this charge to, uh, to Jill and, and Eustace, and I'm going to read you this, this excerpt here. Stand still. In a moment I will blow. But first, and that's, he's sending them over this cliff, okay, and, and off to the land of Narnia, okay? Um, but first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night, and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear, and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. 
remember the signs and believe the signs, nothing else matters. Now, if you know the story, you know that Jill and Eustace do a pretty miserable job remembering and following the signs, and in so doing, they get themselves into a fair bit of trouble. But not too much trouble for the mighty Aslan. Which then brings us to this, just landing this thing and bringing it to a close. We need to follow the signs. We do. Um, To look to Jesus and His ways, His wise ways, His sovereignly merciful ways that have a way of working themselves out, if I can put it that way, even when we blow it, even when we forget the signs and fail to pay heed to them, which then, when you think about it, can spark a desire to follow the signs, to follow Him, this wise, merciful one, all the more because of His wisdom and His mercy. Let's pray together. Lord, You are the Lord. We throw that out oftentimes a little too quickly, a little too tritely. Um, We're just sort of used to referring to You that way. But You are Lord indeed, and we are but disciples. We are but followers. Ours is but to trust and, and heed. As surely as as you created birds with wings to fly, as surely as you created fish with fins to swim, you made us to follow you. And so when you speak in these strong ways of where and what and and how, ways that, that no one else could sanely claim, you were speaking right into our design. You are speaking right into our very purposes. Please, please, please remind us of that. Even this week, especially when we begin to doubt the wisdom, your wisdom, your mercy. Jesus, we thank you even for this table where we're about to celebrate your supper. Ask that you'd help us to, even in this, these next few moments, to see not just your beautiful, sovereign authority over all our lives as King, but also your sovereign grace and mercy as Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen. If I may ask my fellow 